This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI Audio's on air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Thanks for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Wherever you are listening in around the world, appreciate your time. You may be checking us out at ami.ca slash Co or through TuneIn Radio. Oh, oh, tunes, awesome apps in which to pick up the programming and listen to Kelly and Company here weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Repeated the show at uh, 10 p.m. Eastern time and uh, 6 a.m. in the morning. Who, you know, maybe you're one of those people that want to be with us bright and early for breakfast. Whichever way you can take the show in, we appreciate you being with us. We being Ramya Amudan, myself. How are you today, Ram? Hey, I'm good. I was just thinking and imagining us as a morning show, because that's true. Um, We try to keep that energy, though, right? We we try to have that energy just, of course, to to help people out. Evening energy, too, sometimes. Yeah, some people like that 10 o'clock at night before they go to sleep, or they're sitting there or laying there saying, shut up, please. You're like a train running right through my head, says the song. Uh, not a bad day at this end. Of course, all week up this part of Canada, we've had just a lot of rain around. And we've talked to people, and we were saying this with Grant the other day, about the, the, the weather and how it can you know, really affect you. Uh, I know you're not one for all that dark. You kind of like it a little brighter, not too ridiculous for when you're out traveling. You've been doing okay with it. Yeah, it's not bad. And if I'm going to be completely honest with you, I've not gone out nearly as much as I had, like maybe even a month. My feet are still cold. Like, what's happening right now? But um, we have the old heat. <laughs> well, in I was just going to say, it sounds building. like a drafty mausoleum. That's the oh, way you're describing your place, right? Oh, don't say mausoleum. Let's get geez. those windows banging. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does feel like that with the old windows and old heating system. Um, it just kind of feels like the cold is always a little bit there. It's like so living in a cabin. Right. We're always, yeah, that's what you tell yourself. Uh, you know, a multiple room cabin, uh, plaster yeah. on walls. <laughs> a bougie cabin. <laughs> yeah, with a balcony because it's on stilts. You're not really a couple of floors right. up. It's just right. really, it's just, you know. Just close um, your eyes. Do you put mm-hmm. more light on? Like, I know what to see, but when you're feeling that kind of, eh, do you go around and click a bunch of lights on? Yeah, not as much as I used to because I'm uh, also noticing more light sensitivity, but I do turn on more lights than usual when it starts getting dark all the time Mm. and turn on lights like first thing in the morning. Really? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a real Southern exposure. So if there's sun, there's too much. But when? Oh, Uh, I do too. I have Southern exposure. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should have been clear. Yes. In the morning, right? If there isn't. Like now, then yes, every every way, if I had multiple ways, looks the same. But, yeah. um, and, and do I do the light thing? I think I used to do it more. I think I'm kind of in that position now where my vision is deteriorated enough where it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I like to pretend, oh, it's dark in here. I better put some light on so I can see a little more. But that really doesn't do anything. I still bump into, trip over, knock over the same things if I'm going to. Right. Um, or just feel more like again, I don't want to send a message out there as if I, you know, uh, people with low vision or blind were always knocking things over. Not true at all. But you feel more like you're 
groping for things more. I, as opposed to where before, I might be able to look down and reach right out for a glass on a table or something. Now mm. I find I, I with the, the vision changing, I'm more of a, a, a feel for it, even though I often have the sense for it. Yeah, that's a good point. And for me, I've always had um, so much challenge around when the lights change. Like if the lights are what it is, my eyes get used to it, and then somebody turns the light on or off, uh, it makes a huge difference. And then I need another 20 minutes to all day to, to try to, to get, get back to it. Yeah. So. All right. Well, let's get back to what we're supposed to be doing here, folks. This program shows host. Let's see what's coming up on Kelly and Company. Fern Lullum discusses a major UK advertising campaign aimed to change public perception of blind and partially sighted individuals. We've talked about this event in the past. The 35th Toronto International Snowmobile, ATV and Power Sports Show, the largest of its kind in the world, takes place this weekend at the International Centre that's near Toronto in Ontario. And we're going to learn more about it with one of the stars of the event, multi-time Canadian National Championship winning motocross racer Blair Morgan covered it when I was doing TV work. Amazing event, so much put into it, and something to really be proud of. Coming up also on the program, we have Curious Minds. Christine Malik is going to feature images from the James Webb Telescope today and explains the sonifications making the images more accessible. We love that. We'll talk about it in hour two on Kelly and Company. American-Canadian actor Matthew Perry has revealed new details about how addiction almost cost him his life. At one point during the run of the NBC sitcom Friends, Matthew Perry says he was taking 55 Vicodin a day, and the six-foot actor was down to 128 pounds. He makes those revelations in a new memoir, with People magazine getting a sneak preview. He says when he started the show at age 24, his alcoholism was just starting to poke through, but there were years he was sober, like season nine, during which he scored an Emmy nomination. But things got worse, and by 2018, he was hospitalized after his colon burst from opioid abuse. He was in a coma for two weeks, given a 2% chance to live. Matthew Perry's memoir is out November 1st. Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Hollywood. What a, not just a, a struggle of, hey, I'm doing this show, it gets to me, I have to be able to survive, I've got to do this, but it's that lifetime before what you start as you're getting into a career, as you navigate through what we'd say, hey man, this is amazing show there's so much those actors have got to be the happiest people and most organized in the world not necessarily when it's a happy show yeah yeah Yeah. i mean a show like friends where matthew perry was literally playing the funny guy chandler and for for 10 plus years you're thinking oh man this guy's hilarious but it's not until you know much time after that he really started to open up at least in first person perspective like telling us uh what's been going on with him in his own words did we understand how bad it was and so it's it's sad it really does bring this sadness to when you rewatch the show and you understand like this person was going through so much um off the set and what what and how much of that could we have supported if we knew? I tend to believe that we would have been jerks about it if mm. we knew when it was going on. I was going to say that's kind of the saddest part of, of not, I don't want to say all, because obviously he's gone through so much and had to deal yeah. with so much in, in getting through. But it's that attitude we have. Well, you know, look at all the money. That must make them happier. Or look at the yeah. success. Or they're, they're seen. They're known everywhere. And so many people out there who will tell you who are in that situation that isn't the end all be all. I have mm-hmm. the same issues, problems, concerns and and fears as you do. 
Also, folks, speaking of fears, two college wrestlers in Wyoming are speaking out after surviving a bear attack. Braden Lowry and Kendall Cummings were in Wyoming's Shoshone National Forest over the weekend with two of their wrestling buddies when all of a sudden a grizzly bear came running at them and the fight was on. I just knew I had to protect my head and and just kind of fight for life. Cummings came to Lowry's rescue, jumping on the bear, pulling its ears and punching it. It ran off, then came back again, and a second fight was on. And then I saw it again, and it came and it attacked me again. Eventually, the two escaped, and their friends called 911. Both men are injured, but they're alive. Alex Stone, EBC News. Yeah, I'll bet, guys. Uh, live, uh, we'll live to tell this story. My goodness. Now, with that being said, fellas, forgive me because I have to, as as I was listening and being a former wrestler from, from high school, all I could think about is a skunk coming out of the woods, especially when the bear came back and ready to scream, round two! And, you know, if you had to pin that bear down as being your moves as wrestlers, one, two, three, pin! What an experience, Rumya. Wow. Yeah, no, I can't even. This sounds like a movie to me. Oh, it's yeah. It's not even something that we can we can <laughs> understand by breaking down. It's just like, get out of here. <laughs> As a wrestler, I, I, you know, I knew that one, two, three, pin. Uh, but I also knew if you encounter a bear, play dead. So I yeah. would have been in that pinned position, playing dead, covering my head, hoping that he just took mercy on me or that I didn't smell too good or appealing to a bear as he... Mm, no, yeah. take a pass. Wow. Go to my primitive senses and just lay down. <laughs> Couldn't imagine that brawl. Could like it's just no. oh. Uh no, good luck guys on healing. Hopefully they heal uh fully and and no permanent uh damage. Um but it really makes us mindful and what we have to realize when wandering, hiking, whatever in the wood, be as prepared as you can. We'll step aside for a couple of moments here on Kelly and Company. When we return, Michael Fair will be reviewing the Timbuktu classic messenger bag from a blindness perspective. He's got info, lots of info and perspective coming up in a moment on Kelly and Company. you have a few moments and maybe you'd like to reach out to Accessible Media Inc., check out the Accessible Media Inc. Facebook page. Great place for conversation. Uh, they'll put up some video uh, content up there for you to check out as well. That's the Accessible Media Inc. Facebook page. If you want to investigate AMI-audio a little more, follow them on Twitter at AMI-audio. That's the handle, at AMI-audio. Rumya's handle uh, is uh, at AllRams with a Z on the end. Mine, at AMI Kelly Mac, in case you want to follow along as well with us. Feedback at AMI.ca if you've got questions pertaining Accessible Media Inc., AMI-TV, AMI-Tele, uh, whatever it might be, AMI-Audio, of course, you can do it there. Feedback at AMI.ca. Rumya Amuthan, Kelly McDonald, host of the show. And on Thursdays, we talk a little bit of tech we also get into maybe some carrying our tech around let's bring on michael fair i think we have mike michael it's going to be an interesting conversation today because blind people low vision you know if you have technology that you need to carry around and it doesn't always have to be the perkins brailler we have to think about how that's going to happen you want to secure your items but you also want to have them handy to pull out when you're traveling. So we are going to talk about one of these um, 
ways to carry around our items. The messenger bag has proved to be a popular solution to this problem for people who can see. So maybe it'll be helpful for us as blind low vision people as well. This week, Mike, you're going to review the Timbuktu classic messenger bag from a blindness perspective and talk more about the messenger bag concept altogether as well. So first of all, how are messenger bags different uh, than others? So basically, you got those two objectives, secure and safe when on the move, but handy for use. And unlike a backpack where you have a a couple of shoulder straps, you have it on your back, uh, and you basically have to extricate yourself from one of the straps to to swing it around and get at what you need, messenger bags have one carry strap that is sort of a large pad. Usually there's padding. uh, Certainly this messenger bag has substantial padding on the strap. And uh, it's designed to be carried either over one shoulder or across your body, sort of over the opposite shoulder. So the strap would grip onto the opposite shoulder, and it would the strap would sort of extend across your body, and the bag would be on your hip or maybe a bit higher, if you prefer, on your other side. Uh, the bags, uh, messenger bags, aren't rigid, uh, so the compartments in them, uh, you have flexibility, which helps you balance the load better because you can decide what goes where, what needs to be more secured versus, you know, on the backside and, and where in the bag these things go. They have laptop sleeves sort of at the back. And then going forward, there's there's a main compartment usually. And then there's other uh, pockets and compartments. And that'll depend on the brand of, of bag that you get. Uh, but the idea basically is everything is in its place. And it's not so much padding to protect as it is securely in position. Uh, and it, it's a, sort of a, that, that's a, the sort of a different approach than other packs will take. Okay, Mike. Awesome. Very interesting. I love the description too. Help me, that helped me out a bit. What attracted you to the Timbuktu brand? Well, the more I've, I've, I've got another messenger bag from another company that I, I believe I reviewed before on the show, the PKG designs, uh, bag, uh, T- Timbuktu is a much more well-known brand. Uh, it's, uh, basically been around for 30 plus years and uh, they they really created this uh, classic messenger bag 30 years ago, and it's still one of the more popular ones. In fact, if you look in messenger bags, it keep just you can't avoid it. It keeps coming up. Uh, they use recycled material, which is great, 100%. So that's great. Uh, and it, it's the the reviews just consistently were about how you know, durable these bags are, and just the 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 how it holds up over time. So that was great too. I, I don't like having to invest in a completely new situation uh, to carry my stuff. If I can find something that would just work for years and years, I'm a happy camper. Nice. And there's a couple of different sizes that people can choose from. So why did you choose the, uh, choose the small size? Yeah, there there are four sizes. They go from extra small, which is about 49 bucks, to uh, large, which is, that's a 21 liter bag. And uh, that is big enough to hold like a 17-inch laptop. Uh, so, And that's one of the deciding factors is what are you carrying? Now, for me, I'm not traveling with a laptop, so I don't need it to be uh, any longer uh, side-to-side than my keyboard, essentially, uh, which is the longest thing I'm going to carry, really, uh, potentially. So uh, the 13-inch, the, uh, the small size will, will do a 13-inch laptop, which is long enough for my keyboard, and uh, a good size to keep tech in that sleeve from bouncing around. Because if you get if the sleeve is too big, then your tech can move around too much. Uh, and uh, so I figured this would sort of prevent that. If you get the smaller size, uh, you know, things have left, less room to sort of move and hit each other. 
Um, so that's one consideration. Right. Uh, and it just seemed like th- that's a 14 liter bag, the small size mm. uh, bag. And that, that seemed like about enough. And I was thankfully right about that. I'm not always good at those kind of estimates. The space, yeah, the size, yeah. figuring it out, right? What, yeah. Cause you're, you're so used to the physical, okay, what would go in there? What takes up, what do I have that I compare it to? So I, I have some yeah. idea. Yeah, I have a ruler from grade school that I'm very thankful I uh, sort of stuck into a bag and then maybe neglected to return. Uh, it's coming maybe. handy for that sort of <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's a nice size. It's very portable. It's it's small enough also that you're not going to have to take it off when you're sitting on a bus. You can slide it around and back in front of you. So uh, it's it's handy for that as well. I have an audiobook version of Weathering Heights that I may or may not have, uh, re- I may have forgotten. I'm not sure it returned. Uh, what compartments does the classic messenger bag actually have? So you got a few. You've got the laptop sleeve at the back, right? That's the, that's the farthest back you can go. Uh, and that offers a bit of padded protection, uh, not a ton of padding, but a little bit. And then in, fr- in front of that, you have the main compartment, uh, which is somewhat deeper, bigger and slightly deeper. Uh, because the the sleeve sort of raises the uh, the laptop a bit off the, the bottom, so it's less prone to bash, you know, in, in water, right? Anything like that's going to stay lower, uh, and uh, so that's that's kind of a good thing. Uh, the main compartment, then you go forward, you have uh, pockets on the front of the main compartment that can sort of go into it. There's uh, an organizer area at the front that has two pockets, sort of deep rectangular pockets, that are big enough to hold like power banks and things like that. Uh, mice, uh, uh, that sort of thing. If you're sighted, you might want a mouse in there. Uh, and there, they don't seal, but they're sort of there. And then you got a couple of uh, pencil cable kind of sleeves that hold. Or use, I guess they're really meant for pencils markers, but I use them for cables because I don't tend to carry pencils. Uh, so many people never give them back. Um, so ahead of that, you have uh, a zippered compartment that opens up. It's a front sort of interior large zippered compartment, not as big as the main compartment, but still fairly roomy and deep. Uh, and closable by a zipper. Then in front of that, you have an open sort of uh, pocket uh, on more towards, in, in not quite on the exterior, but sort of in front of the, the organizer area pockets. And you have that, uh, you have, and then on the front, you have a, a, a zippered pocket that's in exterior that's vertical, and you have a Napoleon pocket that goes in from the side. So that's, that's quite a lot of different pockets to stick stuff in. Can you tell us more about that Napoleon park? pocket yeah it's a feature common to a lot of messenger bags you see it often in reviews and it's it's a pocket that that tunnels essentially it's it's got a zipper that opens sort of on the side of the bag just a bit behind the main pocket or sorry behind the front front uh zippered pocket that's exterior so it's tunneling behind that front zippered pocket and, and it's going in sideways and behind so you can get at that and put like flat objects in there it's actually fairly deep and long so you could fit you know quite a bit in there uh and i think it's really thought of for things like glasses that you might want to just get out of your bag easily without having to open it up so it's 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 kind of a nice flat sort of area and uh that extends there so that's, that's a pretty common feature and i'm happy that it's uh, in in that classic messenger Sounds like enough pockets, you know, or, or that space, that that particular one, just additional. I, I like having different compartments, but for sure, not going to lie, there are a lot of times it's too much and you're like, I, I put it in here. No, yeah. I I go, oh, my God. Um, what's the advantage to having non-rigid walls shared by different compartments? Yeah, this is a feature with messenger bags that it's not built to rigidly. Like if you put this bag down, it, it'll sort of 
kind of keep it shape, but not like totally. It's designed to be carried against your body and sort of conform a bit to where you're carrying it. So the only really structural strength uh, of these compartments, it's not like they're going to rip. It's tough material, polyester and TPO coating on the outside. So they're tough. But the, the, the advantage is the walls can bend. So if you need things secured in zippered pockets, but you might not need so much main pocket space, you can do that. That'll, that'll bulge into the main compartment, take up a bit of that territory and things like that. So, and again, with your laptop sleeve, if I carry things that are thicker than a thin laptop in there, it can, the sleeve can extend a bit into the main compartment. So you, you can make those trade-offs and really balance your load better with a lot more flexibility than some other packs give you. Now, we talked about backpacks with Margaret Weldon a while back on In the Know, and it was really interesting to talk about the durability of bags. And when you go shopping for these, you know, how much attention do we pay to the actual uh, material and things like that? So how much protection do these bags offer? So they've got basically polyester. It's very sturdy stuff. Uh, It's not going to rip unless you attack it with something sharp. Uh, or uh, you could puncture it. Like if you put something, you know, impact something maybe incautiously, it could puncture through perhaps, but the material is quite tough. Uh, and it, it has, uh, it, it's TPU coating. So it's, it's water resistant in this bag. If you threw it in a lake, your stuff will be soaked. Uh, but you know, for rain, you should be pretty fine. Uh, you know, the water bottle is carried inside the bag, but it's easy to extract um, and the Velcro, what it's got is Velcro on the front that really locks it in place, plus little buckles that are sort of underneath the flap. So it's it's harder to sort of get at it, sort of reach in from the front. You, you can get at it more if you're wearing the bag. Uh, it, it's a bit easier to get at those buckles than if you're just coming up. Um, and it, it the Velcro will really hold it shut, so you can really move and not worry that things are going to fly out. Uh, it does make a ripping noise when it opens, so you have to be sort of mindful of that. Um, but you don't have to worry about stuff falling out if you've secured stuff well. Uh, it doesn't have a lock, so think about that. If you have stuff that you're really worried about losing, you know, might be keep it in a pocket, things like that, real sensitive information, uh, stuff like that. Uh, but, it, you know, you're going to hear someone ripping that Velcro, uh, getting into that bag, and uh, probably feel it. Uh, so uh, it's, it's as secure as you are, which is true of most things, right? I mean, I'm sure if someone came up, threatened you, uh, you know, you'd, you'd probably cough up the goods and not get like injured. Right. So, you know, barring the real extraordinary, uh, you're going to be in pretty good shape that way, I think. Yeah, so true. Uh, and, and Mike, I, I, I kind of used to love the, the ripping noise unless I was sneaking in to get something, a snack that somebody, do you really need that now? Hey, we're trying to do something here. Yeah. Uh, that, that's really like the only that. Exactly. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> So when we look at it, Mike, how happy are you with this messenger bag? I am pretty good. You know, uh, I've only had it for a short time. So, you know, time will tell more as it goes on. But I'm very confident. It fits my stuff really well. Uh, There's still room to spare in the main compartment, which uh, I'm not quite sure what I'll end up using that more for as I travel more. But, uh, you know, it's a nice setup. It's it's good. It's durable. I, I feel safe that it'll keep my stuff relatively dry, even if I'm caught out in some nastier weather. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a nice setup, and uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with uh, with how it balances my tech. Awesome, Mike. Well, it's really great. Like I said off the top, we talk about technology with you all the time, um, but sometimes it's nice to get into the carrying of the technology as well because things add up. 
You know, things really do add up when you uh, start collecting <laughs> and pairing yes. all your technology together. I have a mass of accessories and things. And just every day uh -huh. is like a water bottle and stuff that I carry around. So sure. it really does come in handy to, to pay attention and get a bag that you really like. Mm-hmm. Now the next question is, how much muscle do we have to carry all these bags? Because we haven't gone out in years. Thanks, this Mike. This is true. <laughs> all righty, my pleasure. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Michael Fair joins us on Thursdays to chat uh, technology and a little bit of audio entertainment. I have a sneaking suspicion that we'll talk audio entertainment soon enough because we're heading into Halloween. But going back to the messenger bag, you can find the Timbuktu bags at their Canadian website, T-I-M-B-U-K-2 at or dot com or dot ca. I like dot ca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I love that versatility because I would have really never thought about bringing something like that to the table in Mike's case but of course cases bags important coming up in just a moment on the program Fern Lullum discusses a major UK advertising campaign aimed at changing public perception of uh, blind and uh, low vision individuals we'll be right back Welcome back. Kelly and Company with Rami Amuthan. Kelly McDonald, host of the show. So what have you carried on your back? Do you have a computer bag? That's what I've used forever, where I can throw my laptop in there. And I love all the pockets. One, two, what about four of them, I think? Uh, including the ones on the side? No, actually five. Mm. Do, you, do you have a particular one oh. that you've carried? Do, do you bother? Or is it a knapsack or what? Or It's always been back. I'm a backpack lady. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's always been backpacks. But, I mean, I had a messenger bag that I, I think it was my brother's and I stole. I really liked it, but it still couldn't fit everything I needed to. So then I would just use it for specific reasons, which ends up being it's not enough reasons to have it around. People with guide dogs often too have to have those extra pack. Like you start oh, yeah. thinking because people say, "Well, what do you mean it didn't fit everything you had?" Well, you start thinking about everything. You Someone moving around transit carry. who regularly transits, Thank you know, you. who's out all day. You might have that those the compartment for a little bit of snack or your lunch to carry your computer. Mm -hmm. And then if you are a guide dog user or just you know somebody, hey, I'll just keep this stuff in here when I come home. Take the dog out for a walk. You got to have those places for everything and you don't want to keep, oh, we got to pick this up, got to pick that up and away we go. So very interesting things to think about. So really cool. And Mike bringing that to us. But folks got another great topic to discuss today and learn about as we welcome our bestie from the UK, Fern Lullum. What's on your mind? I'm Fern Lullum from the UK and whether serious, silly or somewhere in between, I've got you covered. Let's face it, the most effective therapy is a chat with your bestie. Interesting stuff always. We're discussing a major UK advertising campaign going on and it's aimed at changing public perception of sight loss, Fern. Yes, indeed. And just before I get into this, can I just say that I don't have to worry about bags because I have a boyfriend for that. So that's that's fine. He can carry everything for me. Uh, so um, we rephrase the question. Not to, even a suitcase, huh? That's it. It I was just going to say we, re we rephrase the question. What does Josh carry? Yeah. Everything. Everything I need. <laughs> and so, what kind of yeah, bag? <laughs> what kind of bag? Well, anything, maybe a roll-along bag, just just anything. <laughs> whatever he I, wants. Yeah. We'll leave it to him. Yeah, whatever he wants, as long as he's got it, then you, I don't have closer. to be organized. And you were closer yeah. with suitcase. <laughs> yeah, I That's mean, I got wanted. a lot of stuff. 
That's I wondered what kind of bag. Don't you mean he's got a lot of stuff? Yeah, well, we we both have, we both have. So a- anyway, um, let, let's 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 get back to uh, RNIV. Very important. Now, this is the biggest advertising campaign that the Royal National Institute of Blind People, or RNIB, as I just referred to them, um, has ever undertaken, and it's called "See the Person, Not the Sight Loss." Good name. Nice. Mm, now, okay, it sounds like RNIB mean a lot of business on this. Tell us a little bit more. Yes, yes, indeed. So they have put a lot of resources into this campaign. So they focused on public perceptions because they say that their research shows that assumptions about what blind people can and can't do is what uh, has made the greatest impact on them leading a full life. It's just what people perceive about them that changes Mm -hmm. how much they can and can't do in some ways. Hear, hear. Uh, But we know that changing public perception can be pretty tough. What does the campaign involve? Well, at the heart of it is a short film which follows the sight loss journey of a teenage character called Ava. Mm, Okay, wow. I like that they've chosen a teenage character because one of the stereotypes around sight loss that it only is that it only affects older people. Right. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So really nice to see someone young. And Ava is portrayed as a typical teenager who is into gaming and socializing with friends. Lots of stuff in her bag, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I don't want to say too much about the film because I think it is best if people access it themselves. But what I will say is that it paints a really powerful and relatable picture and takes us through a range of emotions. So it starts um, just by showing everything that there is to offer um, in life even with with sight loss you know life doesn't end after sight loss right and this is really really incredible where can people access the film well r and i b say that the campaign um is going to reach millions of people um so they're using a number of different routes to do that including tv and social media so if you want to see the film yourself you can go to the r and i b youtube channel where there is an audio described version and a subtitled version so everyone is catered for good in a campaign like this authenticity of the material is well, to me, the most important thing. Do you think RNIB have achieved that with this project? Yeah, I do. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, their research was used to identify the issues having the greatest impact on the lives of blind people. And blind people were then involved in deciding how to best um, accurately communicate that to to everyone else, you know, through their lived experiences. And I think they've achieved that in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm. And what other activities are happening as part of the campaign? Well, they're using their social media to show short videos of blind people talking about the misconceptions around blindness. And oh boy, aren't there many. There are there's just so many. Um, for example, one of the videos on the RNIB Twitter is somebody explaining that although she is registered blind, she does still have a little bit of sight. And that is very relatable to me because I too fall into that category. Mm. And, and so many people do to some degree, of course. Um, when, when you talk about uh, that, that, that oh, sorry, a lot of people 
think that nobody, these people don't have sight. Blindness is just what it is. Uh, having some sight leads to just having that, uh, hey, you're, you're, you're full of it. And it's just so frustrating to hear that. Now, we do know technology leads to some sort of misconception. Um, you know, we, we, we might hear someone say, hey, how, how do you know about this YouTube video if you're blind? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think there are a lot of misconceptions around uh, being blind and a lot of it is about being black and white. Um, So obviously, as we know, the majority of people who are registered blind or visually impaired do have some remaining vision. Um, And unfortunately, this sometimes means that people are accused of faking their blindness because, you know, it's like you still can see. Obviously, you're not blind, but no, that's not the case. And of course, that's really upsetting for people when they spend their whole life living as a blind person and yet they're being accused of not being blind because they can still see and it's just down to misconceptions Um, and to your point Kelly about technology I think that it is the sort of issue that the campaign is working really hard to address that there is technology out there that can actually help us do things of course there is. I mean, we know that because we have lived experience, but it's about, again, changing other people's perceptions on that. So how is RNIB using TV to raise the profile of the campaign? Well, a TV advert will be shown in the UK from the 3rd to the 28th of October. And they'll also be using a partnership approach on the TV campaign, which is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about it. Well, they've partnered with the UK TV show Gogglebox, which is very popular here in the UK. And on this show, Britain's sharpest armchair armchair critics share their opinions on the week's biggest and best shows. And usually it's very amusing. Basically, they're just commentating what's going on on the show in a very entertaining way. Oh, that sounds really funny. How does the partnership work then with the RNIB, though? Well, RNIB have made a co-branded advert showing the Gogglebox cast members reacting to the TV ad. And this captures the cast's raw and immediate feelings about it. So exactly what they're thinking as they're watching. And this partnership is projected to help the campaign reach an extra, wait for it, 4.7 million households. So Mm. this thing is going viral. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. It all sounds like a campaign that is using modern methods, you know, methods, which is wonderful, uh, to produce and publicize, uh, you know, what's going on here. Yeah, and in my opinion, that is so helpful, not just to the campaign, but also to RNIB. And I think it will help to modernize their image, which can only be a good thing. Yeah. I agree. And everything you've said so far is quite impressive. Like they're doing a lot, all different angles to kind of cover this uh, stigma, stigmas on low vision blindness. But as we said, changing public perception of light light sauce, sight loss. (laughs) Wow, that was amazing. Yeah, it's kind of lights (laughs) off, right? (laughs) <laughs> is pretty difficult, Fern. So can, like in your opinion, do you think that this campaign can really uh, succeed? Well, that is the big question, of course, isn't it, Ramya? I mean, that is what we're we're all wondering and hoping. Um, I think RNIB are very aware of how the big how big this challenge is. You know, sure. it is a big thing, um, and I think they accept that there is more to do, and they say that they will continue to do their work. You know, of course, it's not just going to happen overnight. But meanwhile, what they are already doing should at least help to start creating that change that we're all looking for. Well, I remember when CNIB did the campaign here, just making sure people understood that not everyone who's who you will say is blind, legally blind, is totally blind. And I, I mm. think I felt 
it really made a difference for a lot of people instead of them thinking that, oh, if you have poor vision, just you know, put some glasses on and then you can drive the car. Uh, they understood there was a lot more, not more people with a vision who couldn't get that far, but it did mm. help and they weren't all totally blind. So a campaign as big as the one we're talking about must have come with quite a price tag. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much it cost? Yes. So RNIB say that the total campaign budget is £2.5 million. Pounds. Wow. So, yes, a lot of money. Um, I think that's around £4 million Canadian dollars. So, you know, even more in Canadian dollars. However, around a quarter of that did come from a UK lottery fund. So we're getting some support. Okay, so it it is a lot of money, isn't it? To be put in a campaign, like one single campaign like this. Absolutely, it is. It's a huge amount of money. But to be honest, I think if it begins to change attitudes and helps towards greater equality for blind people, then it'll be a great investment because that's mm-hmm. what we want. Oh, mm-hmm. for sure. I agree on that one. And uh, if it helps get employers, for example, more willing to employ blind people, then it's good for the economy, which helps everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that means everyone's a winner. Yeah. So what's the response to the campaign being like thus far? Well, I've seen lots of reaction on social media and all of it has been really positive so far. So on social media, what are they saying that they really like about it? Well, I've seen several comments that really like the title, See the Person, Not the Sight Loss, um, and that's been really well received. I think most blind people think that, you know, we can be regarded as very different to other people because we can't see. And the truth is, of course, as I always say, that we all have the same emotions, the same hopes, the same fears as everyone else. And, you know, that's something that I'm really passionate about. And it's true. It's it's about the person. It's not just about the fact that you can or can't see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. A, a doctor over the weekend here in Canada, a presentation I attended, she was saying, you are more than just your eyeball. And it's so true, <laughs> but it, it really is something that like needs to be said for some people. And it's a title for, for the case of the campaign that really hits the spot. What else did people like? Well, they like how the film covers so much in just a few minutes. So it takes us right from the despair of Ava, where she is first diagnosed, right through to finding the light at the end of the tunnel and really feeling a lot of hope again. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, Remind us how we can find out a little more. Well, you can go to the RNIB YouTube channel, as I said, to check out the accessible version of the film, whichever one works best for you. It's called See the Person. And to find out even more about the campaign and the services offered by RNIB, you can go to rnib.org.uk. I love how they didn't even shy away from using the word see, like a visual word. Uh, Of course, we're going to be interested in hearing how the campaign is going down the line. Yes, I will keep you updated. Thanks, Vern. No worries. Have a great show. Fern Lullum joins us every other Thursday for uh, dis- UK Disability Highlights. And oh, it's incredible when when you think of the money, Ramya. There's just, that's just not spent every day at trying to help out. But those folks over there uh, get together. And, and I would love to see this kind of campaign shared around the world and, and promoted. So maybe we'll see that sort of thing happening over here where it can be lent to, to the situations here. Really, really cool. Folks, we're going to take a quick break here on Kelly and Company. Uh, Interesting conversation coming up next. I love it. Anything motorsports kind of always gets me intrigued. Anyway, the 35th Toronto International Snowmobile, ATV, and Power Sports Show takes place this weekend at the International Centre in Mississauga, Ontario. 
We're going to learn more with one of the stars of the event, multi-time Canadian National Championship winning motocross racer Blair Morgan in two minutes. Take a couple of moments when you get time, folks. Moments that may help you save time. Subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast, available using your favorite podcast platform. You can listen to the show in segment form, so maybe you you join us in the midst of a segment that you just want to go back and hear it completely. No problem. Subscribe to the podcast. Maybe also you want to check out the full show. Just put it on. Maybe we're doing some baking or something. Well... You can easily do that as well because we put the whole show in the podcast feed as well. Whichever way you want to listen to Kelly and Company, we're quite happy with. If you get a moment, maybe give us a rating and review. But enjoy the show, whether it's one uh, segment at a time or unless you get in there and do a little blitzing and listen to a whole bunch of the program. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald, hosts of Kelly and Company. Looking forward to this weekend because the 35th Canadian International Snowmobile ATV and Power Sports Show, yes, it's a thing, and it's the largest of its kind in the world, is taking place this Friday, October 21st to uh, Sunday, October 23rd, 2022 at the International Centre. And you may be familiar with that in Mississauga, Ontario. There's a lot to see and learn and get involved with. So we're going to chat more about it with one of the stars of the event, multi-time world snowcross snowmobile champion and multi-time Canadian national championship winning motocross racer Blair Morgan who's also racing uh, at the show Blair it's a pleasure to have you on Kelly and company thank you hey thanks for having me on so tell us a little bit about the Toronto International Snowmobile ATV and uh, what's the word that I missed power show power sports show why should people attend in your opinion and what can they do and experience do you mind starting there before we get to you and your journey uh yeah no it's it's a massive event it's really big Um, if you're interested in anything snowmobile or any kind of outdoor activity uh it's there you know uh, come and see you know rather than just browsing online and looking at pictures you can come see it in the real so um they pretty much have all the products there you can see you can sit on the snowmobiles do whatever you want and uh everybody's there so um any kind of clothing uh just you name it it'll be there and there's also a lot of like interactive or or, you know movement-based things that are going on as well aside from vendors yeah yeah i think they have some freestyle snowmobile shows um um, I think they even have like some demo rides and ATVs and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's so big and it's, I haven't been there for a couple of years now, so, um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, if it's changed, you know, since the past, uh, you know, it's been off for a couple of years now. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's, but I think everyone's going to be there still and, uh, it's a massive event. And I'm assuming with your background, you're very excited that it is back after a couple of years of being not available. Yeah, I think with anything in this world, uh, everyone's glad that everything's back to normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, So how did you get into this motocross and snowcross racing? Tell us a little bit more about what that is and how you're involved. Um, Yeah, you know, obviously you start out when you're young riding, you know, dirt bikes and snowmobiles from Saskatchewan. So 
Um, we have big summers and big winters, so I did both, and uh, you know, just kind of went from there. Started in some local races, and then it turned out into bigger national events and then international events, and uh, yeah, it was a great career. You know, um, unfortunately, I got injured uh, about 14 years ago, 2008, and uh, but I'm still involved with the with the sport with Skidoo and BRP, so I'm still uh, making myself useful, I guess. So you're now you identify as a, a wheelchair user, and we're going to talk um, more about that. But can you explain to us your uh, injury or like that aspect of the journey where you had to change, adapt? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I crashed at one of my events in Montreal and uh, ended up uh, breaking my spinal cord and spine. And uh, yeah, so paraplegic from the chest chest down and uh yeah it's been off been a while actually you know it's been 14 years and it mm. seems like time's been flying by no kidding and now um uh, what kind of racing do you do uh well i'm not really doing any of the racing or anything i'm just more of a, like a mentor coach uh for okay. some of our younger uh riders uh, on the circuit uh, i still travel to all the events uh mostly in the united states um it- just kind of bit of an ambassador for uh, for the sport and for ski It's interesting too because Blair, we know so many times people have to they have an injury like yours. The 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 whole looking for the future, I'm sure you had so many of those times in a quiet room just thinking, well what's that mean? Not you know, for for not just getting around, doing what I want to do in life, but the years to come, uh, and being able to kind of settle on those things as as you do, as you have to do. Um, can you talk a little bit about the modern uh, snow cross riding style that you've pioneered? Yeah. Um, well, when I first started into the sport, the, the snowmobiles are, were designed quite differently than they are now. They were more right. of a, you kind of sit down on them and, uh, you know, do like leisurely rides where then we did the snow cross racing, which you're kind of more aggressive, more motocross style, um, more of like a stand-up style that I kind of brought in from the motocross side into the snow cross. And uh, then the manufacturers started to change to the machines, you know, allowing for more ergonomics to be able to do that. And uh, yeah, it's just gone from there. You know, in the last 20 years, 30 years, it's they've changed a lot. It's really interesting because you think about how many different things over the years that have, have come when it comes to winter sports, when it comes to, you know, uh, people out, in, in, you know, doing any kind of riding, even street or, or, or in the woods or on the water. It's pretty amazing when you, when you look at it and go to an event like this, Blair, and what do you find now as you're roaming around that you look at? Is it taking in those newer things or more of the classic stuff or what people are doing and, um, you know, when they're doing their stunts, when they're doing their riding and, and showing and crowds are gathered around. Wow, look look at them do that. What, for you, at an event like this, really, where do you spend most of your time? Um, well, I'll be spending most of my time at the ski booth there, but, uh, you know, I, I like looking around, um, especially with the technology these days, you know, especially with um, more computerized stuff is, you know, they get the streams on the machines now and, GPSs and you can like kind of keep track of where all your buddies are when you're riding. And, um, so the technology side is pretty awesome. Um, you know, but still I'm kind of, obviously I'm an older guy, so I like the old school, the original, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff that kind of made it 
to where I am today. So it's, I'm not, I, I love everything about it. And, uh, you know, just, uh, even like the clothing and stuff has come a long way. The helmets are so much lighter and, uh, yeah, it's just so much more convenient, I think, for people to get into, uh, you know, to go riding, you know, they don't want to spend all day working on a machine and then riding it. They just want to turn the key and go. And that's pretty much how all the machines are now. So would you say when people are coming to this event, the majority of people, if they're thinking of making a purchase, are going to want that easier kind of thing to get, like you say, turn the key and go. Do you find a lot of uh, the old timers coming and saying, oh, I remember having one of these and I re- and, and the stories that must come because there must be some great, hey, this is what we're doing now. This is what we used to do, stories and conversations around the room. Yeah, yeah, I think you got a little bit of everything, you know, um, People who, um, you know, kind of hardcore mechanic guys that love working on stuff and then other people that just want to ride, you know, maybe they have a really busy lifestyle, you know, they have much, they work hard, they don't have much time to ride, they didn't want to bother with, you know, working on it, doing maintenance and stuff and, you know, they just want to go out, get out and ride and, uh, yeah, that's it, how things are. You can do whatever you want with snowball. You can buy a 30 year old sled and they'll make it restored and uh, be a bit of a classic, or you can just get a brand new sled and not have to worry about doing anything other than putting fuel in it and starting it and riding. Is it more of um when, when it comes to people moving on or upgrading, uh, is it, would we say more of a sell to the next person behind you or kind of, I don't want to say throwaway because that indicates, all right, tow it off to the, to the wrecking yard. I don't mean you know that kind of thing necessarily. Maybe that is more what happens, but is, is the, is it favoring that kind of way? We're going that way. where really not, not as much as recycled handed down or, or passed off. It's all about like we do with televisions. Yeah. Um, Obviously, with the the things, you know, global shortages and stuff right now, everybody's, it's hard to find good used stuff these days yeah. also, you know, not let alone brand new stuff. So, um, you know, if you do have a five-year-old sled, you know, people are, you know, making do with that and because they're not able to get into a new one at the time. And so everything is pretty much snatched up, you know, um, even like 10-year-old sleds, you know, and going for prices than they were new, you know, so... Um, Everything is in high demand, I think, right now. So any kind of getting involved with any kind of snowmobiling or anything right now is, um, you know, it's it's, it's kind of tough. But, um, you know, if you're passionate about it, I guess you find a way. And I guess people who are into the clothing, they're looking for the fashionable stuff as well as the practical stuff, depending what they're doing. Like you said, from lightweight helmets down to the stuff that keeps you uh, nice and warm when you're when you're wanting, if you're in that location and doing something in the pretty frigid weather. Yeah, yeah, like I said, like even the technology and the clothing, like my favorite thing are heated gloves. And, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I wear them everywhere. Like nice. I'm not let alone just riding around on a snowmobile. I mean, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. wow. And then they have obviously heated sweaters and jackets and I think pants and boots. They got everything that's heated now. So you don't have to mm, freeze your mm, mm. butt off out there anymore. You can have all like great technology and, um, yeah, it's good. That's awesome. Blair, can you tell us where to go to get more information? Um, yeah, Toronto Snowmobile Show. I'm not exactly sure the, the web address, but um, I'm sure just a quick Google search for the Toronto International Snowmobile Show, and it'll uh, point you in the right direction. Wow. Enjoy yourself. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you. 
Thank you. And we'll, of course, put up the uh, direct link to the show up on our blog as well, ami.ca slash Kelly Show. Uh, Kelly Co. I'm all over the place today. We're talking to Canadian National Championship winning motocross racer Blair Morgan about his experiences and, of course, about the show itself. It's the upcoming Toronto International Snowmobile ATV and Power Sports show. Um, and that's taking place this weekend. If you can catch it, that would be awesome here in uh, Toronto, just outside Toronto. Got some great conversations you can get into with people or at least a take in when you're there. It's a, it's a fun event for sure. Uh, coming up next in the next hour of Kelly and Company, Curious Minds with Christine Malik. Also joining us on this week's roundtable to chat is uh, in the No contributor, Margaret Weldon. You know her from the program. But up next, it's the Thursday Buzz with Bill Shackleton. He'll visit with us momentarily. Welcome back to the program. This is the second hour of Kelly and Company. It's a Thursday show. Thanks for being with us wherever you're listening in. Kelly and Company at your leisure. Rami Amuthan and Kelly McDonald here. We're the hosts of the show. Wednesdays through Fridays on the program, we welcome in Bill Shackleton. We call the segment The Buzz. You can also check out the best of the buzz through AMI exclusives. Billy, welcome back to the program. Hello, guys. How's it going? All right. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate uh, always what you bring to us. Three days a week, a pile of items. Where are we starting? Well, I thought this was one that's going to be pretty timely because report cards are be- are coming out in Ontario, and I thought I saw November 16th. So this article is called Struggling with Talking to Your Kids About School Assignments. Here's how to make it easier. So this comes from CTV News. So basically, an expert is is weighing in on how you can help your child deal if they're struggling in school. And there's actually three or four different warning signs to look out for as a parent. Mm -hmm. The first thing, the first one that they talk about is if you ask your child if they had a test. Now, if they have done bad on a test, they won't talk about it, but they'll get a look on their face that says, hey, I really don't want it. They get this sort of sheepish look. Um, saying, you know, that says, well, gee, was I, or they'll change the subject. So there, there, is, there are, you know, if you don't get a straight answer, it's the, the parent can then say, look, um, I mean, are you not telling us because you got a bad grade? Because we don't care about the grade. We just want to know why, um, you know, why you're not telling us. Was it, is it, is there anything we can help you with? So, that's the kind of thing where, you know, Billy, have you done a, have you, have you, no, I, yeah, I think you have, but you're not telling us. Yeah. Yeah. And you're certainly not being truthful about it, but yeah. it, it does come down to, I mean, look, look, if somebody doesn't want you to know, they're going to be uh, good at, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you do all right? Yeah. Whatever. And yep. You know, means in my opinion, I did okay, even though I failed. Um, And I think that the reaction is important. I know we can 
tend to badger, and that that's sometimes not really helpful. So it's a, it's an interesting one, Bill. And I guess probably in more cases, a parent might know. Okay, something's going. On. I'm not getting like I think you you use the perfect words. You know, you're getting a bit of run around, or you know, and an, an, a certainly not a definite. Oh yeah! Oh, I kicked butt on it. I was great, and like like the item says, it doesn't matter the mark. Can we help? And what can we do uh, so that student hopefully feels more empowered to? Well, you know, just math is a struggle. What else, Bill? Well, actually, we do have the next one's about about doing homework, and one of the things that happens is that if a student, if your child is having a meltdown, they don't want to do homework or they're banging the table in frustration. Um, there's, you, you should be talking to your child about what the, you know, what, why, and it could be now, usually according to this expert, um, it's usually about math because math is one of the most difficult subjects. I mean, it certainly was for me and a lot of kids can't grasp it and if they're having problems with with any subject or math they'll get frustrated and a parent has to you really pin this down and 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 you know if you if they can't because not all parents can help with math oh, that's so right they, or, or any subject sometimes yeah, it's just not right. their thing that's right you they have to go to the teacher or they have to go to a relative or a friend and say can you the child is going to need maybe an intervener to really get around this, and the teacher has to get involved, and we have to find out, is it just a concept of something, or in, do you does your child need extra help? And if so, then that's what you got to do. And this it's really difficult, as you say, because parents, not all parents, can do that type of right. thing. And sooner than later, right? We don't yeah. want to, oh, well, yeah. you know, hopefully he'll come to us. and t- No, no, no. Let's, let's intervene the best we can and give the supports or make sure that the child is aware the supports are there. You know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make the horse drink, of course. And But if the horse feels comfortable, the student feels comfortable and not, oh, my gosh, this is just going to be night after night of torture and impatient people screaming at me. I think that's so important. And sometimes, like you said, Bill, it isn't maybe that the parent isn't great at math. Maybe they're just not as patient or have that mindset. And you got to be honest with yourself there. Okay. Now, there's one more. Um, if your if your child is always getting sick or complaining about getting you know maybe they're sick and and they're just sort of uh, making it up because they don't want to go to school, it's a really good sign if you think that that's happening that it could be bullying, it could be a problem that the, your child is having in school. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those things where you have to find out if I mean if there's a problem. You've got to get to the bottom of that. You've got to talk to the authorities or talk to them and say, you know, what, why are you, I mean, being, if, if you're being sick, um, can really harm your health mm-hmm. as well as your school. You're, you're, you know, you're, so you have to go in there and say, what's going on there? Yeah. And I think the legitimacy of the problem or making it worse, that does live there as a possibility, depending 
which way you take, what dilemma is happening. You know, you certainly don't want to put your your child in a situation where they're going to continue to get more hassles. But on the other hand, you can't sit there and say, well, yeah, but when I was a kid, we didn't need mom or dad to step in. You got to really look at things in a realistic way and try to think it out before uh, knee-jerk reactions that could get all of you or somebody into some difficulty that that uh, that doesn't need to be. Okay, Bill, right. uh, wh- what do you have next? Well, here's one talking about trash. BC man pledges to pick up a million bottles off Canada's roads. Isn't that interesting? Um, coming from Global News. Um, so there's a man in BC that has spent the last 10 years picking up people's trash, bottles specifically, and he has a pledge to pick up a million bottles. And I don't know when he's going to get there. He needs your help. He needs all our help. So he has gone apparently across Canada several times pushing a buggy, picking up trash. Um, and he is he's saving, like he's pulling two or three jobs, two part-time jobs and a full-time job in the catering business because he's a one-man crew. And he is, you know, when he is vowed to pick up a million bottles. And he is just also took it upon himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's teaching kids too. When he he's from BC. So when he goes in there, when he he's from Pemberton. So when he when when kids see him, they applaud him. And he's teaching kids the the value of you know of the of the environment and he's and, and about climate change. And he says, I don't know when, when I'm going to be able to stop, but I'm going to keep going as long as it takes. So well, for a topic, a million, yeah. well, absolutely. I mean, there's that whole aspect of it. Imagine picking up a million do- uh, bottles, how long it's going to take, how far it can yeah. go. But also this whole concept in in a topic where we're just, doing a lot of talking and i'm not saying that talking is not motion like it it creates a lot of momentum we're doing a lot of learning and information and looking within ourselves and reaching out so a lot of talking and sharing when it comes to climate change but this what he's clearly uh going for is showing not telling right like just saying this is what i can do yeah watch me and this is actual change happening right now like if one person could pick up a million uh, bottles, then what What can, you know, what we have the capacity to do? What don't we have the capacity to do? Yeah, and, and the fact that he's, that the school kids are getting involved in it, because he, as you say, he's saying, okay, if I can do it, and, and I'm much older than you are. Pretty much. Um, you can do it. And ripple effect, like after hearing this conversation right now, I'm thinking if I were to, you know, come across a bottle on the ground, I would pick it up. Just 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 from knowing that somebody out there is picking up a million bottles as an actual initiative, um, because that's the other thing, right? Like there's just so much of, well, somebody will do it. <laughs> like, there's so much of that. Somebody else will do it. Why do I need to care? Like you you see trash blowing in the wind and you don't think it's your job to pick it up. And um, clearly it is. Yeah, right. Good nice. luck to that. Mm-hmm. One last one. Oh, yes. Um, woman is charged with uh, setting off a swarm of bees um, uh, uh, on a police officer, on a deputy. So apparently what happened in 
in Massachusetts, um, uh, the police were called to a house and they were met with protesters. And one of them pulled up with a trailer with a bunch of beehives and he took the, the lid off one. And of course, the bees went nuts and stung the, the deputies. And uh, three of them, I, I believe three, were allergic to bees. And so the woman was charged. So I thought it would be a good buzz article for at, at the end. Pretty, uh, well, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that if we didn't squeeze it in today, we would have definitely not brought that up tomorrow. Friday article. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the whole thing, but yeah. <laughs> good it's, one, Billy. Yeah, and it can be so scary, right? Like, it and dangerous and deadly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yep, yeah, they sure can. You ever been stung? Twice. Uh, step on one, or were you, like, like, how did you get stung? Well, the first time it stung me in the butt in a car, and I, I sat down on one. And the second time, and, and this is really dangerous, um, I was having something to drink outside, uh-huh. and I got stung on the lip. Yeah, I always <laughs> thought that would happen to my mother, because my mother yeah. would always, she'd catch them sometimes, oh, look, there's a couple of bees in there, I can't finish this. It would always be soda, she'd sit out on the step, and away they would go, and as yeah. for stung on the butt, it's usually butt, leg, or foot. People yeah. often, and you know, it just happens to land, or maybe even is injured, and we come along dancing. I, I got stung on the foot, stepping on one once. Shaq, no, thanks really. a lot, pal. All right, thanks a lot. We call it the buzz at the top of our second hour, Wednesdays through Fridays, right here on Kelly and Company. I always appreciate when Bill brings so much to us. Coming up next on Curious Minds, Christine Malik. She's going to feature some images uh, from the James Webb Telescope and explain the sonifications, making those images more accessible. That coming up after this break. Check out AMI-audio right from your television. Rogers, Ontario customers. Guys, check us out on channel 196. And Rogers Ignite customers, channel 146. You can enjoy our programming right here from AMI-audio. Visit AMI.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Kelly McDonald here, host of the program with my co-host, Ramya Muthan. Here we go. On the third Thursday of every month, we check in with our friend Christine Malik for Curious Minds. What did, whatever happened to when you? Was, what does that mean? How does that work? Oh, I didn't know that. I never knew. I'm Christine Malik, and this is Curious Minds, a monthly dive into arts and culture from a blindness perspective. It's so fun to think we revisit astronomy nowadays. Like we just we talk about it so much because there's so much happening and it's very very exciting. It's so, beautiful. Chris, we can talk about it and understand and have opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And thank you for framing that as instead of Chris, all you ever talk about is astronomy. <laughs> no, <laughs> thank you. It's for exciting. That. Well, when we you bring do, on astronomy, yeah, and if we can do that with food, Chris, you can bring uh, astronomy. Yeah, since really, it's like actually, once a month? Come on. yeah, and and this is yeah. new, man. Food's been around. We can, but being able to talk about astronomy and understand and know that we can get concepts. Wow, mm-hmm. it's really true. It's really true. okay. So the thing that we're revisiting is the images from the James Webb Telescope and sonifications, making these images more accessible for a blind low vision community. Very, very exciting. You've talked about sonifications before. We've heard some audio samples as well. Can you remind us what they are? 
A sonification is when you take data that just exists as data and you convert it into sound. Now, the vast majority of things that NASA is publishing are visualizations, which means they take data that is non-visual, such as x-rays or infrared, and they convert it into a visual spectrum of something that people can see because most people who are consuming the stuff are sighted. And right. so the choice to do it visually is just the biggest case scenario. But you can do anything with data. So a sonification is when you take data and you convert it into something that is audible instead of visible. Okay, so... This isn't the first set of sonifications released in the field of astronomy. What has come before? Uh, the Chandra Observatory sort of led the way uh, with this kind of thing. And they, with Kim Arkand, she's kind of running that. And she wanted astronomy to be more available she wanted it to be available to everyone. Right. And so one of the things she uses is the curb cut analogy, which is that curb cuts are really useful for someone in a wheelchair. But once you put them in, you see that parents with strollers use them. People mm -hmm. with suitcases use them. So we all know that this, this phenomenon exists. And so when Chandra Observatory started doing sonifications, they went viral. I'm making air quotes because people love them. And so people take in information in lots of ways. And just because someone is sighted, it doesn't mean that they're fixated on vision or that vision is even the most important way that they take in information. So uh, it, it was led by the Chandra Observatory and Matt Russo, who's an astronomer, astrophysicist and musician in Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, has been doing sonifications for quite a while. And so... Uh, that kind of laid the groundwork for what happened with with the, some of the James Webb images. Just gives us a um, a more robust experience. That's what I think. Adding sound, <laughs> you know, it's just yes. so full when you add yes. sound to things. And of course, I'm coming from the bias of being low vision, but whatever. What's happened with the James Webb images? So just for a little background, the James Webb telescope is... Uh, it's uh, right at the moment, it's about a million and a half kilometers from Earth. It's at the Lagrange point, which is the halfway point between Earth and the sun. And it's taking images in infrared, which is below the visual spectrum. It's uh, heat, really. And so um, the images that they're getting, you it, it's very much in the press. So you may have heard or seen or read news releases where they're saying, Look at these two images. This one was from Hubble, which is visual, directly optical. And this is from James Webb. And look how much more information we have from James Webb. So James Webb is really the cutting edge. The telescope is really the cutting edge of uh, what astronomy is, is looking at, the field of astronomy is looking at. So what happened with the first images that were released was that it was decided, let's, let's do some sonifications of, of the, some of these images. And so uh, the process of sonification, I think I've sort of talked about in previous uh, segments, takes the data and ascribes values to it. So Matt kind of took these three images and as ascribed pitches, tones, instruments, some panning, and makes kind of an auditory landscape out of the images. And for me, uh, uh, it the first time I heard a sonification was was really overwhelming because I think a lot of the hook for sighted people to get interested in astronomy is by looking up at the night sky. And it's a sensory experience of something so abstract that you can read about astronomy, you can study, you can try and understand it. But 
you know, to have a sensory experience is uh, is different. It's it's visceral. It's gripping in a way that reading about it uh, just isn't. And so they chose three images: one, uh, the Carina Nebula, the Ring Nebula, and the Wasp 96b planetary spectrum. Now, I'm a non-scientist. I always want to say this: I'm a non-scientist. So, a, if I you know screw up and say stupid stuff, it, you know, I'm a non-scientist, so I can get away with it. But also, that my understanding is <laughs> I'm covered, right? I just did a <laughs> disclaimer: I'm not a scientist. Um, and so. The, the first two, the Ring Nebula and the Carina Nebula, they're very complicated and uh, there's lots going on. And so the, the sonifications are busy. And the great thing is that when you listen to them, you can listen to the whole sonification, but then you can listen to them in layers. And so you can separate out the different streams of data. So you you can say, okay, I just want to hear the background stars. Now I just want to hear the shape of the nebula. Now I just want to hear the gases or something like that. So the, the sonifications have layers that, and there's text that goes along with, along with those sonifications that explain them. And I, I kind of want to make a note here because for, well, for a couple of reasons, when, if, when you Google this, one result that you're going to find is that a lot of press got interested in the alt text, which is the the image descriptions, the the written mm-hmm. descriptions of it. And you were saying like the secret stars or the runaway, you know, the 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 the, the big deal. Um, you know, the unexpected hit of the James Webb release are these written image descriptions. And so uh, along with the sonifications, there's been some excellent writing brought to bear on image descriptions. And so the NASA and many of its its various arms like Chandra and the James Webb, they're taking this stuff seriously in a way that I never expected when I was a kid growing up reading sci-fi and stuff. They, they're really... There, there's people, smart, smart people interested in doing this work and the work's getting done. So um, the sonifications exist, but also the uh, the alt text. And that's not just now and then. Everything NASA releases now, I'm on Twitter, and uh, that's one of my favorite social media platforms, and all of their image tweets have, have alt text. It's yeah. absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I've noticed that too. It's It's really phenomenal. And when you think about... If someone was to be able to be lifted or a, a pilot in a plane or, you know, when they're observing going on uh, higher, they're going to see more. You get a telescope, you're going to see more. And so many images for people who can see are there or or made possible uh, by however it's decoded for them. But this is such a wonderful thing of decoding because there is so much. There's so much available when you look through a telescope and putting it in a form for us. And it's like you said about the first time being overwhelmed separating the sound uh, it's just yeah. a phenomenal but you want somebody who whether it's an artist recreating for people who can see or somebody who is good with the literary word to be able to take the sound and what they hear or or you know yourself somebody who's used to using it how would you write it out so let's look at what is the value of all this uh for me personally the value is that i have access to information and context that I didn't have. I could read about the concepts, 
and then here that there's beautiful images yet yeah, that's that's not helpful and mm-hmm. uh so it adds a richness to my experience of of learning um one thing i think about a lot is kids who are blind now and stem and when i was growing up and i I don't need to tell you guys this stuff just didn't mm. exist right no, it's like audio no. description mm-hmm. like you didn't even dream about it really so um i i like to think about the opportunities that kids have uh you know today and that to feel included like i was just on a call with nasa media people teaching each other how to write alt text and i'm like these oh are gosh. super phd smart people and i wasn't even a participant i was just listening in to them talking to each other how do we write good alt text so this stuff is it's embedded now in a way that I just never dreamed of. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. In, you're seeing alt text come and show up in other places that by people who just understand the importance of it, not just for us, but even when newspaper stuff just describes who are these people were before. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Just mention that somewhere in the article. People can see it for themselves. Yeah. But I don't right. know. There's so much now that is becoming the norm that, again, going back to the curb cut example. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, it 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 increases your search engine optimization oh, when you yeah. write alt text, right? So, yep. uh, for people who may be listening, thinking, "Oh, I could write alt text. Why would I really do that?" That's another reason is that search engine optimization is is uh, increased when you have more words associated with your images. Yeah, there are all these different wonderful reasons for for you to get get on board right like there's the business side of it there's the you know empathy side of it and then there's also kind of like ai filling in the blanks like now it's it's really interesting because with ai and machine learning doing alt text as well kind of on the same level as people doing it personally yeah. um, we have all these comparisons of good alt text bad alt text like we're not just saying mm-hmm. yeah there's alt yeah. text we're actually you know critiquing it too and like you said yeah. with that workshop you yeah. got to be involved in the development of these what was that like unbelievable uh, i had been uh working with jj hunt as a consultant uh for writing his the chandra descriptions that had been being we've been doing that together for about 18 months and so uh I got approached by the people doing the James Webb sonifications as a consultant and I got to, oh my gosh, like the smartest people arguably in the world. And there I am mm. on a call with them and they they wanted to hear what I had to say. They asked my opinion, like, does this make sense to you? How could this make more sense to you? Um, one of the really thrilling parts for me was that I got to consult on the writing style because when you're reading with a screen reader, it's a really different experience oh, from yeah. reading with your eyes. And so short sentences, lots of commas, lots of pronoun use, there's particular things that make uh, alt text better yeah, uh, and just writing in general cleaner, better, especially so clean. sci- cleaner. Yes. And especially science writing because this stuff's so obscure and complex and <laughs> There's styles styles that really are helpful. So I got to say, hey, you know, can I be involved with the writing? Can I edit? And they took my edits and they incorporated them. And wow. so as a space geek growing up as a little kid reading, you know, science fiction and watching Carl Sagan on TV and stuff. Now <laughs> here I am on calls with super duper smart people and they want to know how to make their material accessible to my community. And whew, yeah, it was uh, it was thrilling it was totally thrilling absolutely (laughs) amazing and just so so fun and and what what you love to hear is the keenness um tell us how can people find this stuff uh 
there's it's everywhere. So uh, there'll be notes, there'll be links in the show notes. Uh, so you can just Google what James Webb Telescope Two Bs W E B B Telescope sonifications, and you'll find YouTube links, which are okay. But look for the NASA sites. Uh, go to some news articles and look for the actual NASA sites because that's where you'll find uh, the you know, the explanations. And I have a Twitter feed as well called the Invisiverse, like Invisiverse. So uh, if you're on Twitter, I-N-V-I-S-I-V-E-R-S-E, and that's where I post a lot of accessible astronomy stuff for blind and low vision people. So those will be in the show notes as well. Okay, very helpful. Lots of progress, Chris. Got to let you go. Thank you so much. Thank you. Chris Malik joining us on the third Thursday for Curious Minds, talking about the James Webb Telescope and all the fun accessibility fun and just cutting edge and just making you stop and say i can learn about it now you betcha up next the roundtable folks we're joined by in the know contributor margaret weldon stand by isn't it convenient that we have a round table well it's actually helpful just say it. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, well, I, don't know. I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. Wow, it's kind of odd, folks. I've been unavailable for a couple of weeks uh, on Thursdays. Uh, Ramya has uh, stepped in here, had some great guests on the program over the last couple of weeks to join in. We've got another good one today with us. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald, host of the program, and we welcome in our in the know contributor, Margaret Weldon. Megs, welcome back. Uh, we'll see if we can reach her there, folks. Uh, the idea of the conversation here is it's uh, an open conversation, handpicked by uh, whoever's hosting, yours truly today. And uh, as mentioned, our bi-weekly contributor, Margaret Weldon, uh, with us as well as uh, Margaret also co-hosts on the program when we uh, when one of us is away. Mags, do we have you there? Still getting I just Margaret. can't hear you at the sec, Mag. So not sure if that technical issue is uh, is there. Um, we'll see if maybe we get you get you back in there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you may have to disconnect and and come back to us uh, in a moment. Um, so what I'm gonna what I want to get into, uh, Ramya, we'll start here and see if we can get Mag's back mm-hmm. in here. Uh, as the Northwest Territories, tourism uh, opens and kind of recovers from the uh, COVID-19. Uh, ni- okay. Uh, okay, there we got you, Megs. Uh, there we I've, are. Okay, am I, am, I, am, I, am I here now? Yeah. No, I I've I just said we got you. We're, you're, yeah, we're right there. You've oh, got good. you. Good. Okay. <laughs> Don't try to be sarcastic, Kelly. Come on. No, no. Got I, her, too. I, it's, I always get this... Um, I, I always get this funny image, you know, when that sort of stuff happens and then they say, okay, now you're, now you're back in. I always, I always picture myself like being carried back in or floated back in or something like that. Ah, oh, dream yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, I know. She's can, can, can someone just, you know, walk for me, carry, just carry me in. Megs, welcome back. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. I was just uh, starting to explain our first item as the Northwest Territory, the tourism industry, uh, begins to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Some markets are recovering faster than others. Now, some tourism operators say they've been booking guests from elsewhere in Canada, but unfortunately, they're not seeing as many international travelers. They're still seeing people from around Canada. Ed Lumanowski is the president uh, and director of uh, New Star Properties Incorporated, um, which owns the Explorer Hotel in Yellowknife. Let's take a listen to what he has to say. These are the markets that take a lot longer to organize and to build confidence in 
longer distance travel. Tourism, for the most part, is driven by local markets. So the closer markets are the ones that actually create the most overnight travel. Okay. So my question to you guys as we you know see this as a dilemma, I don't feel a surprise. Where in Canada, Margaret, have you always dreamed of wanting to go, whether this is a childhood dream, whether it's today somewhere that you maybe see here? Because a lot of time, and, and again, we've talked about this changing. We're getting a little better at celebrating Canadian things, no matter what they are. Is there a part of Canada that you want to share with us where you would love to have traveled to and why? Well, um, I would like to do the the uh, trip, the Polar Bear Express train up to northern Canada, just because it's a train ride, but it would just be something different to do. I've also got um, a couple of cousins in a couple of other provinces, um, you know, so I, I wouldn't mind, uh, you know, maybe going to those uh, provinces as well. I really haven't been outside of Ontario where Canada is concerned. Like I've been to other countries, but just not really around this country. When I could, and we've we've shared this, of course, when we talk about the Yukon, um, I've said, I've always dreamed about seeing those Northern Lights, especially when I had a little more vision, even not knowing would I really see them. We were just talking to Christy Malik about astronomy and what we could or couldn't do. And I could never look in a telescope and see anything. Someone say, okay, I've got it pointed, Cal. Do you see the collection of stars? Do you see the Milky Way? Nope. Don't see anything in there, like just dark sky. And that would be, and that was when my vision was at its best. So I used to think that it would be so cool. I saw a picture in school and would like to have gone to the north uh, and looked at the northern lights when they're at their brightest. Now, I think in Canada, I'd really like to go to a place where you've got houses on cliffs right on the side of the ocean where the waves are crashing below, you know, and I, you know, read about these in books or hear about them on my old radio shows, you know, some, some wealthy person has this place. Now, you know, you can rent places and that, that are on properties like that. But I always thought that would just be so cool to be able to literally go to that edge and have the ocean below long as it was safe. And I wasn't over that edge. Rum, how about you? I, I have not explored enough of the West Coast yet. I haven't, uh, sorry, East Coast yet. And I haven't explored enough of anything yet in, even in Ontario. But there's something that I feel like um, I'm really, really missing, like like a soul missing uh, in the East Coast. And I just can't wait because when we went to St. John's, Newfoundland, and that was a, a, a wonderful trip with the Kelly and Company team, um, I felt like it, it was a home you know, it was just really, really beautiful. So different from um, here in Toronto. And like, I just love traveling. And I think that traveling to places so, di- I don't know, it feels really, really nice. And I've been to Halifax as well, but I want to go to PI. I want to go to New Brunswick. I want to go to all these places um, and just travel around the East Coast with, with like an unlimited budget and time <laughs> and explore. I think it's the waters. I really do think it's Yeah, just, and yeah. I think for a lot of people, and Margaret, I don't know if you'll agree, uh, the water, I know New Brunswick, uh, I've not spent much time in there. I, when I was a kid, we drove through on the way back from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Um, you know, but I didn't get a chance to really check, but I hear about so many people going there to parts of New Brunswick that are on the water that, and me being a fish fan, of course, check that out from, from Nova Scotia to PEI to, to New Brunswick. Margaret, is there a particular thing? And, and again, you mentioned where family is and that, and I think there's always places some people would like to go to Alberta and see some of the digs for, for dinosaur bones and things like that. 
Actually, and, and I've been told that that, uh, that particular trip to, uh, to Alberta to do that dinosaur exhibit is something, re- is really something to see. But, um, I, I think for me, number one, the, the Polar Bear Express is, is, uh, is a, is a train, you know, that I, I would like to go on. Um, but for me, I, I just want to go, you know, just to see the qual, just to feel the quality of the air, the different qualities of the air. Um, just maybe it's, it's always funny or it's always amazing to me. I think when we listen to people from other provinces, they always seem to have different accents, you know? Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. In different um, communities. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, that's always been kind of, um, you know, that's always been kind of fascinating to, to listen to. Okay, nice. um, thank you. That's that's yeah. awesome. Uh, Romanowski says that the international market will take at least two to three years to recover. That's what he feels. Other types of uh, uh, travel, government, business, and interterritorial have uh, interterritorial have recovered fairly quickly. The Canadian. I, I, I will. I will just add one more quick thing. Yeah. I noticed for a se- for a segment that I'm that for an upcoming segment that I'm going to be doing. I will say this: a lot of tourist industries and hotels and things now are really starting to make accommodations for every type of traveler. Like, you know, if mm. their needs, they're, they're, they're um, getting, you know, receiving special training from various consultants and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it, it'll be a big industry when it comes back. And yeah. different will look differently yes. probably for a while, but then it'll go back to being the same. Uh, the yeah. Canadian Institute for Health Information says Canadians age 65 or older in long care home, long-term care homes are three li- three times more likely to be described antidepressants than those living in the committee over the last five years particularly. Tracy Fisher, manager of pharmaceuticals at the organization, says seniors living in long-term Care homes are more medically vulnerable than those living in the community. Living in long-term care are more frail. They are more medically complex. And also, during those pandemic years, we know that seniors were disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Fisher says that her institute's uh, research analyzed public available data on drug position, uh, sorry, drug prescription claims to public drug uh, programs in all provinces and the Yukon. Uh, again, Rumya, I don't think a real surprise. You're in certain circumstances. You're when lockdowns happen. You're in your room or with one other person or or nobody. Um, and I think in 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 the general public, whether you live alone or not, you have freedoms that you you are going to be compromised, but seem less. So I, I think I can understand the three times when it comes to the depression. Yeah, I, I think that I said this and I think it was a vanity card or something like it, it, we're really living in this time and age where we're becoming more attuned to mental health, that's for sure. But it's it's kind of like the more attuned we're becoming to mental health and the, the state of how we feel and how we're reacting and responding to the world around us, the more we realize how sad it is and how difficult it is for us, for our neighbors, for our families, for whoever. And um, there's just like, I don't want to say very little being done about it, but there's it's not at the same pace of, you know, understanding that this is going on. But how do we make it better? That pacing is just not caught up. Um, we heard, Margaret, during the pandemic of all the things that needed to be done, the improvements, the things to help kind of keep people in 
retirement homes, nursing homes, uh, to hopefully do something about the vulnerability because they're in there and, and COVID was, was striking so many people. Um, do we do you fear that when we talk about a subject like this and the depressions and things like that, that we've talked a lot about it, as Ramya says, we don't seem to be doing a lot about it. Do we get to that point where we talk, we assess something that we've done before, assessed, talked about, and then go back to doing nothing? You know what? And that's so true. And that's and that's almost what is happening, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, I, I did hear an article on this very topic about 10 minutes before coming down here. And one of the um, spokespeople, I guess, that were involved with the study basically said, well, part of it is that it's easier to keep um, people calm and and drugged. And what happens is sometimes, you know, you get too much of that sedative. And yes, you're going to need an antidepressant to get you back up and going again. Now, I think that's a theory. I don't think I don't know that that's fact. But yeah, unfortunately, you're seeing it and you're you're seeing you're seeing in some cases things worsening because You've got less medical staff now, especially with this new big wave mm-hmm. coming on, right? Yeah. And the, the quality of care, unfortunately, is, is just disintegrating. I mean, at least this time last year, um, what did they say? There was only 14 nursing or 14 long-term care homes, rather, in the province where the seniors had, you know, where the people had COVID. Now there's 150 across yeah. Ontario where, where people yeah. have got it. Yeah. yeah, at this time last year, we were, silly enough to say, in better shape than we are at this moment now in the province of Ontario. And I, I don't exactly know where to go with it because there seems to be that, look, just give me something for this. Just try to make me feel better on, on the yeah. part of us, um, the individual. Uh, you, you just, what are we doing? Isolating, this is a problem. Then do we work it out? How do we work it out? Is the medication seemingly the answer for them, for for society? And is this just a note that, yeah, okay, great. You know, people are... Are, are are in better shape outside of. So interesting thing to look at as they bring this out. Guys, I want to talk about The Crown, if we could, for a few moments. The popular Netflix series, The Crown, is facing new scrutiny as to how it portrays the royal family in its upcoming season. This reporter reports that one English actor uh, has urged the popular streaming company to post a disclaimer at the beginning of each episode denoting the series as fictional. It comes days after former Prime Minister John Major denounced a scene from the upcoming season that reportedly depicts Prince Charles approaching Major with a plot to oust his mother, the Queen. Major calling the scene a barrel load of malicious nonsense. Netflix defends the series, calling it a fictional dramatization. But in her letter, Dench referenced the scene, saying it's cruelly unjust to the individuals and damaging to the institution they represent, and called on the producers to add the disclaimer as a mark of respect to a sovereign who served her people so dutifully for 70 years. Okay. Judy Dench uh, says the series seems willing to blur the line between historical accuracy and crude sensationalism. Ramya, as somebody who's taken in the show, did you do you when you watch it think about it as a historical show or uh, th- being aware that Netflix is embellishing? And I know one could argue that uh, anything about history they're going to embellish, they're going to change. Mm-hmm. W- w- this seems to be more of a yeah, but guys, more of this is is just made up for entertainment than is actual. Uh, it, what's your thoughts? You know what I think? I think no matter how much you know it's fiction, you'll still wonder which parts of it are true. 
And that's just the case. Yes. And what's based on history and especially because something like the crown is literally taking events that have happened and timelines that have happened and seasons, you know, that bring in characters that live today and have lived in the past. So you're you know what I mean? Like it's drama. It's obviously drama. There's obviously fiction. Obviously, aside from the characters being real, you can just say nothing else can be possibly nothing else is real right but doesn't matter it's just like with the jeffrey dahmer thing as long as it's a dramatization as long as we're watching it as long as it's based on some level of truth whether or not you you understand that it's fiction you'll in your head think but what part of it is true Mm -hmm. disclaimer does it need it yeah i guess to just give us consistent reminders go ahead margaret I was just going to say, I'm I'm surprised because I thought, and this might have just been me, I thought that whenever you did a historical, um, you know, series or movie like The Crown or some of these other things that have come out that have uh, revolved around history, that you, that that it was just uh, standard practice that you put the disclaimer in. Like I, yeah. you know, like at the beginning of each um I, I remember things movie. being that way. I have no idea if that stopped at some point. Don't, don't you wonder, though, there's a reason why they don't did it, do the disclaimer? Because they kind of want you to fall into it, right? Like Mm -hmm. to fall into not constantly reminding yourself that it's fiction. Like you want to be able to watch The Crown and take in it what you will. But yeah, it's unfair, definitely, because these people are are having to live with the reputations that they're receiving from this fictional show. Okay, so let's jump into this one. Speaking of Buckingham Palace, it says that uh, 1,000 Paddington Bears and other teddies left in tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth, who, of course, have been left in London and Windsor, will be cleaned and donated to a children's charity. Mourners left thousands of tributes, including flowers and teddy bears, after Britain's longest reigning monarch died last month at age 96. The Queen appeared alongside Paddington Bear in a short comedy video during Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Take a listen. Perhaps you would like a marmalade sandwich. I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I keep mine in here. For later. Margaret, final word on the roundtable. Very quickly to you. I knew that meant something to you. Paddington Bear, the Queen. Yes. And you know what? And that's a very, very touching um, um, video. So if you have the chance to go back and watch or listen to it, do it. it, it yeah. yeah. I knew it's, you'd it's, like it's that. A, it's, a highest, it's a highest sign of respect. Yeah. It was handled nicely, incredibly. And of mm-hmm. course, Paddington Bear tweeting out great stuff, too, regarding uh, when the Queen and compliments. Uh, what what you need time. to do is is read the book and and uh, maybe discuss it because the Paddington Bear is even though it's a kids book it's Aww. pretty entertaining it's pretty funny. <laughs> Margaret Weldon, our guest on the roundtable. We do this on Thursdays. We'll be back to tell you what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown after this. When you have time, remember to subscribe to the Kelly and Company podcast, available to you using your favorite podcatcher. And all you can do there, folks, is the following. Listen to the show in segment form. Listen to the complete show, including the audio vanity card, and enjoy yourself. Okay, I threw that in because, of course, as we do this program every day from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern, we're always hoping that you do. Uh, Whatever you 
whatever you get time, whatever you do listening to the show, whichever way we appreciate it. So thanks a lot. That's the Kelly and Company podcast. Please simply subscribe. Ramya, I want to go back to segments from today's show. Anything particularly you want to highlight? Yeah, we had fun conversations. I think the RNIB campaign that Fern Lullum uh, shared and highlighted in our UK disability highlight segment was pretty memorable because they're taking the opportunity to give people some very accurate messaging and they're spending a lot of money and a lot of time on it uh, trying to get, you know, hits from TV and social media and YouTube and film and all these different places. So anyway, the details are in the segment, but the messaging is around how if you're legally blind, doesn't mean you're totally blind. Um, People with some eyesight can still identify as being blind, like all these different perceptions of blindness that they're tackling. And as Fern put it, this is just the start. It's obviously not the end, but it's the start to some really great uh, conversation. A real mammoth uh, amount of money going into this thing. And I likened it to when CNIB was uh, doing the campaign that not everyone who's blind is actually blind. And I think that helps so many people. So we sit back and say, well, what's the measuring stick for this of success? And I think uh, the the proof will be in the pudding afterward. And that's all one can do is hope. Uh, and, you know, some are going to say, hey, you spent all that money for that. We'll never really know what that impact is, but it is always nice when people can learn things without having to have you have to preach to them as they'll say, oh, I just, and overwhelm them if they learn it in their own way, own time. And I think when you do campaigns like this, you you have a choice of who you're looking at at Twitter or wherever, you pick up things and you pick up what you want to pick up from it, hopefully interpret it in a way that's helpful to you and moves the the needle forward. Uh, it's It's all good, I think, that way. Uh, we are not on the air tomorrow. Uh, the show's off. We will be rerunning uh, um, our, um, what are we rerunning tomorrow? Oh, our Reconciliation our, Day. Yes. Yeah, well, our programming that we just had on, uh, please, if September you did 30th. miss it, please check it out. Yes, that's from September 30th. Uh, so we'll be doing that. The gang at Now at Day Brown, they are there. Rum, what's going on on their program tomorrow on uh, Now at Day Brown on AMI-tV? That's right. Some of us are still working, Kel. So on the Friday edition of Now with Dave Brown, (laughs) the news panel is taking a closer look at some of the findings from the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. So that's going to be interesting. Michael McNeely is offering up his thoughts on the Superfest Disability Film Festival. I'm sure he has a lot to say on that. And International Artist Day is next week. So Karen McKay is featuring several books that celebrate art on their uh, SELA check-in. That is really awesome. Some great things to discuss. As we were talking about with Christine, it's getting those fantastic descriptions in there. The um, artistry, whether it's verbiage, printed, or or, or drama. And uh, lots of that stuff, including good drama uh, on the air this weekend here on AMI-audio to check out, please. Uh, Rum, thank you very, very much. And uh, we've got a, a show ahead tomorrow for you. As we talked about, we'll be rerunning our reconciliation, um, National Reconciliation Day programming. Uh, we'll talk to you later. Sounds good, Kels. Talk to you later. We want to give a big thank you to Eliza Rocco for uh, teching the program today. On Monday's show, let's take a look ahead. Uh, Michael Babcock will be featuring articles that are going to be, uh, re- well, that were released in the September uh, issue of Access World and highlights an IRA promotion you can take part in. Brock Richardson of the Neutral Zone will bring us our Monday sports. 
Uh, also, Sean Priest, host of Sean of the Shed, a podcast that uh, giving those new to the world of technology a helping hand will be with us on the program. Camille Reporter, Annette Dennis highlights, know your food, grow Eat and understand. This is a Middlesex County food literacy event. uh, Orientation and mobility specialist Mark Rankin will be on the show, and he'll be covering environmental accessibility for people with disabilities and the kinds of tools making it easier to deal with these challenges. Danielle McLaughlin will round off the show uh, and uh, the topic, changing public health information and requirements for pandemic... um, Uh, protection that is on the program we'll get into that conversation monday when we're back live beginning at 2 p.m eastern fedora's off to you folks waving at you take care of yourself one of the interesting things that i heard today and I guess this is an ongoing thing because there's so many different challenges on through social media to do this, to capture yourself doing that. And I don't really understand this, so forgive my ignorance. Getting points or credibility, I guess, in, in whatever way uh, the different systems do it, TikTok or whomever. One of the things they were saying is a real hazard is people feeding birds. Yeah. Never really knew it was a thing. I mean, I was taught in school, do not touch a bird. If it falls out of its nest, you got to hope, help it in some way, but do not touch it. So I don't know, you know, as you go online now, you can look to see if there's ways of coming in contact with it, putting the bird back up to its nest or, or, or just putting it in a safe place so the mom can help it get to it without it being in danger and your scent being on it. Because we were always told the mother will ignore the bird. But apparently what's happening is by feeding the bird, the bird gets used to it. Of course, you have a bird feeder. Birds love to come there and hey, they don't have to go hunting. They lose that skill. And with people doing some of this stuff, trying to get the best shot, maybe doing it multiple times, we're putting the birds in danger. I had no idea this was going on. Um, and I, I guess people do it, post it to Instagram or wherever. And I think we forget sometimes these little things, how they affect going forward. You know, it's something, hey, I'll do this a couple of times, get the perfect shot of me doing it. Bingo. No problem. No foul. No harm. And I kind of like when we come out and we hear from veterinarians or experts saying, hey, 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 there is harm. Stop. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.